You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. In 2008, I gave up my 20 year career as a fashion buyer because I was disillusioned with how much was being sourced overseas. And I set out to uncover some of the amazing businesses that are still making in the UK. Since founding Make It British, I've discovered that there is not only still tons of manufacturing taking place in Britain, but that it's a thriving industry. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be chatting to inspiring British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering advice to product-based businesses that make in the UK. So with no further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode number 268 of the Make It British podcast. Today I'm chatting to Laura Ward, who is the founder of luxury British-made tennis brand Exayat. Exayat is the UK's most exported luxury tennis apparel brand. And Laura herself is the winner of many awards, including Global Startup of the Year. She's also one of the government's UK export champions. And she has been seen in Vogue, Forbes, The Financial Times and Vanity Fair. In this episode, she's going to give you tips about how to export your brand globally and how she's managed to get such amazing press in such a short space of time. The business only having been founded in 2021. Prior to launching her brand, Laura spent two decades as an award winning global advertising executive for brands including Audi, Unilever and Diageo. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Laura Ward from Exayat. Here you go. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today on the Make It British podcast. Thanks, Kate. Lovely to be talking with you. Do you want to start by telling everyone what your business is, what it does and whereabouts you're based? Yes. So we are called Exayat and we are a luxury British tennis wear brand for women. We make all of our pieces from pioneering sustainable fabric and we are based down here in Wiltshire and of course we manufacture very proudly in the UK. Yes you do but that hasn't always been the case has it and that's why you ended up getting in touch with me to say I want to share my experiences of reshoring my production back to the UK. So do you want to tell everyone uh, firstly how you got started? Did you have any experience in clothing development before you started the brand? Yeah, so so good question. So no, I had absolutely no experience. My background is advertising. So I spent 20 years in that industry working for, you know, sort of huge blue chip brands and companies, flying all over the world, shooting adverts, definitely not spending time in factories or designing garments. So that that was sort of a whole new world to me. But I had the idea for Exeat when I was living in Paris. I'd been sent there for work to set up an agency. I didn't know anyone. And I saw an advert outside my apartment for tennis lessons for beginners. And I thought, fantastic. What a, what a great way to meet some people in this city and also polish up my French. Obviously, I didn't have anything to wear. I went shopping for some fabulous new kit. You know, it being Paris, I wanted to look the part, but I was so disappointed by what I found. You know, in, in my mind, tennis was this sartorially famous quite glamorous sport and yet the clothes that I was able to buy for it as a as a woman didn't seem to connect with that they were just created at that time by sort of the same three brands 
the silhouettes were were quite limiting. They were they were unflattering, certainly for my body shape. And the fabric was super flimsy and and just lacked some quality. And with my marketeer's hat on, I thought, wow, light bulb moment. This is an opportunity. There needs to be premium tennis apparel available definitely for women. And this is potentially something I, I could do. But it took me, so that was back in 2017. We started producing for the brand in 2020 and, and sort of la- formally launched in 2021. So obviously that was a three-year gap, which allowed me to A, build up the finance to be able to, to do this, but B, create a, a, a network of, of experts that would allow me to execute against, against my big idea, which seemed like such a great idea at the time, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, was very tough to do in practice. So three years, I mean, that is not actually, you know, I've heard of people taking a lot longer than that to get a brand off the ground if you're going to do it properly. But how, who helped you? How did you get started when you first launched the brand? Yeah, so, so yeah, so go, going back to your question about us, where, where we originally manufactured, it wasn't in the UK, it was out in Portugal. So we went down what I now believe is, is quite a common route for, for industry newbies, which was that. We hit Google, how do we make a fashion brand? Where do we find factories? And eventually, after a lot of Googling, we realized there were these things called agents and the agents can help connect you to a supply chain when you, you know, you don't have those contacts yourself. So we found an agency in the UK um, and we, uh, we started working with them and their, their manufacturing setup was based out in Portugal, which is obviously a, a manufacturing hub. So we just take, took that as read that when you manufacture, as a British brand, when you're manufacturing, we, we were almost told that not a lot of brands do manufacture in the UK, but that it was really to, to, to get the quality and the good pricing, we, we would have to go overseas. So again, sort of t- took that as read. But uh, manufacturing at the height of COVID and also during Brexit. So those two things were the ultimate way to to torture test a, yeah. a, a an overseas supply chain and it really came up lacking and it was then that I started to think there's got to be another way there's got to be another way because this distance between us and the people who are manufacturing our product not to mention a, a, a language barrier you know it's all these little things and what they end up impacting is the quality of the garment Right. Our garments are, are complex. You know, they uh, they feature lots of details, everything from pin tarks to pleating to princess scene. We can often be working in quite slippery, stretchy fabric, which can lead to, you know, sort of puckering and rippling. Like they are complicated as opposed to knocking out, you know, a few track suits and T-shirts or, or whatever. And with that level of detail, things were slipping through the net in, in production and it was very difficult we couldn't just jump on a plane and say oh hey actually it's meant to be like this and everyone was doing their best to be clear everyone was doing their best our our agent the factory it was just so tough but yeah that that distant not being able at the drop of a hat to see a factory just face to face and say actually it's this that's wrong and if you could just tweak tweak it to that etc it'll be fine that was an issue and it's then that I started to look at the UK and if that actually could be an option for us. 
And you found that it was, obviously. Popping in here to say, if you are listening to this and you're looking for UK manufacturers to make your brand, don't waste your time searching on Google or going via an agent. It can work out a really costly mistake, as you hear from Laura here. Just get in touch with me and I'll let you know how I can help. So the manufacturer that you've got in the UK, they're based in London, aren't they? How did you find your first contact with the manufacturer? Yeah, so so to to source, so, so so sourcing our UK factory was incredibly challenging just because we didn't have any contacts in manufacturing whatsoever still. You know, we'd been working through our lovely agent who was who was helping us out in Portugal, but but we again it it, it was totally like starting from scratch. Just emailed people, called people, was doing count counter samples with factories and 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 eventually managed to whittle that list down to about five factories and then our our, our preferred factory is Eurotrim and they're based in Tottenham and they have been so amazing for our brand you know the quality that we're able to achieve the fact that I mean I'm based down in Wiltshire so it, it, it's a train ride away but that's quite different from a flight but you know same day I can pop up and just see them for literally 10 minutes and you know they they can run out a sample for me and it's it is absolutely brilliant and they're real partners to us we're, we're definitely one of the smaller brands that they work with they work with some super famous amazing British brands which again is feels like such a privilege for us to you know to sort of even even be be in the same room as some of these guys which is fantastic but yeah they they are brilliant highly recommend them really good lead times uh, we can do sometimes on-demand production if we need to, really quick sample turnaround. And they're, they're our partners. They've become our buddies, which is amazing. Oh, I absolutely love it. That's music to my ears. Brilliant. So, Laura, as well, on your garments, like in tennis wear, you've got pleats, which you call your power pleats. That's not an easy thing to do, I know. Tell me how you get, got pleating done in the UK. Yeah, so so we've become pleat geeks. Pleating, again, it's just something you never think about as a lay person. Like, oh, there are pleats on a garment, fine. But our pleats have to be permanent pleats, which means they don't wash out. They also have to, in some tennis wear, pleating can actually be quite, it can add bulk to a silhouette, which again, we don't want. We want, you know, very like streamlined, quite sassy silhouettes on court. So it took us a while to develop our pleating. Uh, again, obviously, initially we were doing it out in Portugal, but when we moved to the UK, we found, again, I'm going to shout someone out, the most amazing pleaters called Cement, who were based in Potter's Bar, so just outside of London. And when we were repatriating the production, I actually went up to go and visit them. And anyone listening to this who even has a vague interest in pleating, you must go and visit Cement. It is like an Aladdin's den of, of pleating. They do everything from like knife pleats, accordion pleats, sunray pleats, pleats that I've never even heard of. I think they've done stuff for like the Game of Thrones costumes and it is amazing. And what's really cool, obviously we're a sustainable brand, is that the the way that we've we've got like 12 millimeter knife pleats, that those are our perfect power pleats that we say shake and shimmy as you move. And they create them on hundred I think it's a hundred year old uh machinery and the pleats are basically created by placing two bits of card or maybe it's one bit of card, but, uh, and, and then you place the fabric on top and, and the machine sort of bunches it together. I'm describing this so badly. 
and then and then they're sort of baked in an oven to set the pleat. But that's all that's practically carbon neutral because they use this, you know, this brilliant heritage machinery. And it's just fascinating. So yeah, cement pleating, absolutely awesome. And they take care of all of our pleating needs in the UK. I have to say, after you you originally said to me that you use cement, which is spelled C-I-M-E-T, isn't it? I looked them yes, up. Their Instagram yeah. is incredible. So I'm going to drop a link in the show notes for the podcast for everyone to see. Because on their, their Instagram, they have loads of little real reels and videos showing all their pleats. Pre- it's mesmerizing. Watching the pleating is just mesmerizing. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to go and see them. So, Laura, you are a bit of an export champ, aren't you? So your brand, I mean, you said you launched in 2021. So at the time of recording this, it's 2023. So only a, in only a couple of years, how many different countries do you export to? And how did you first set up those export accounts? Because I know a lot of brands really struggle to understand the, in, the ins and outs of exporting. So fill us in. Yeah, yeah. So. This came about really by virtue of, of Brexit, because obviously Europe should have been a huge market for us in tennis. And in fact, just to do like a bit of a, a tennis breakdown, I think there are about 3 million players in the UK. There are around 15 million players in Europe. So it was obvious to us, we, we knew all of this before we launched the brand, obviously as part of our business plan. So we knew that our, the markets we really needed to focus on was never just going to be the UK. It was going to be overseas. And primarily, we just assumed that was going to be Europe because obviously we can do zero rated trade with them. That was all part of our business plan that we were devising in, you know, sort of 2020. We knew Brexit was happening, but we were told there were going to be amazing trade deals. <laughs> anyway, didn't quite pan out like that. And, and so we very quickly realized that we needed to look beyond Europe in order to be able to hit, you know, the levels that we, that we wanted to hit in our projections. So we were connected with, and this was like right at the beginning of our journey. So we were really, really fortunate, but we got connected with the department. Uh, I think the, yeah, department, I don't know, department for business and trade. They've just changed their name. So I just want to get yeah. that right. Department for business and trade as they're now known. And they ran something amazing, which again, another plug, uh, is called the Export Academy. And it is a free resource that any business can do. You do it from the comfort of your own office. They're like online module um, uh, and they're free. Uh, and And it's basically a course that teaches you how to export, teaches you everything. It teaches you how to devise an export strategy, like which markets you should be focusing on. It teaches you the really tricky stuff, like the paperwork, systems like Chief, like Incoterms, like uh, Commodities Code, all this jargon that sounds super scary if you don't know what it is. But actually, once you know how it relates to your specific businesses, it's it, it's totally doable. So yeah, so we did that as a as a business. We all did the Export Academy, and it just set us up in really good stead to confidently export. And now we sell, I think it's around 40, 45 markets at the moment. Now we are helped because we've got a we use DHL for our 
are direct to consumer shipping, which does make things a lot easier because they can take care of a lot of the paperwork for us. But obviously for bigger things that we're importing, like our fabrics we import, you know, we're doing the paperwork that we're doing the imports. And when we're, you know, exporting to, uh, you know, to sort of global retailers, again, we're not necessarily going to be using, uh, we'd, we'd use a freight forwarder as opposed to a company like yeah. DHL because it's, it's a lot cheaper. And it's just given us that confidence. So yeah, so this, this free training just really set us on our on our path to go global. And we were also very lucky that when we launched, we did receive international press coverage, which again was a bit of a lucky fluke. It was it was COVID. I don't think people were writing about a lot of stuff. Not a lo- not a lot of new collections were being pushed out. So our timing was good. And tennis was also one of the only sports that people were allowed to play during COVID. So it was just kind of a no-brainer, I think, for for, for journalists to write about, you know, it was a new brand, it was British, it was tennis, and it, and it was that more sort of premium end, end of the market. So, yeah, so we were covered uh, by Vanity Fair. We got coverage in Vogue. Uh, we were covered by the Financial Times and, they, and, and various other publications. But I mentioned those three because they get syndicated globally. And that meant we had international web traffic practically from launch, um, which was a very pleasant surprise. Um, although we weren't quite sure how to send our goods to South Korea, for instance, but we soon figured it out. <laughs> wow. So how did the, the, you say, you, you know, there's some pretty amazing publications that you were mentioning then. Did you do that press mm. outreach yourself? Did you have a PR agency that you work with? How did how did that come about? So, so we work with a PR agency. And again, as a small brand, obviously, you choose where you spend your budget. So we don't have investors. This was all self-funded uh, by myself. And we chose to sort of save in certain areas, but then splurge a bit on, on PR. So for instance, we chose, I mean, now we've got lovely offices that we're based in, but I made a decision that we'd basically be working from home uh, for, uh, you know, sort of year, year one and year two to save capital so that we could spend it on things like PR and it was money well spent you know uh once you've been featured by Vanity Fair or featured by the Financial Times or how to spend it like you've always been featured by them if that makes sense you can always use that in your marketing and it's just that rubber stamp to say yeah we're here we're legitimate you know we've been acknowledged by some of the best fashion journalists in in the world and it's really helpful you know, when you're speaking to buyers and, and yeah, and just when people come and visit your website and they can see that you, you know, you, you have sort of received those accolades. So money, money well spent. I'm glad, I'm glad that, that we did that. Yeah. And do you still work with the agency? Is that an ongoing relationship with you having with them or was that just for the launch? Yeah. So, so we pulse our PR. So again, small brand, we have limited budgets. I would love to have 365 day PR. We can't afford it. So we pulse it during our peak season. So we're not doing any PR whatsoever at the moment because this is essentially off season, Um, but we'll pick it up again quite early next year and we'll probably run it again, depending on what our budgets are for between four to eight months depending on what we what we can afford so so yeah so we've got to be a bit careful there there was uh I think about a year ago we were spending on PR during the winter months and we just didn't get any pickup whatsoever like of course that's that's so obvious like we were trying to get into gift guides and, and it was just again the the agency did their absolute best but it was a waste of money you know we lost 
I think about four, four, five grand. It's a lot of money. You know, we can spend mm-hmm. that on our Facebook ads and be generating, you know, actual sales and cash. So yeah, we've, yeah. we've learned, we've learned how to, how to do that, but it is brilliant. And PR is super important, obviously, as a, as a fashion brand. Yeah, I totally agree. Are you ready to finally master your manufacturing and create profitable UK made products? If so, I've got an exclusive training just for you. This training is for businesses that make in the UK or want to and who are interested in working with me in our British Brand Accelerator for creative small business owners who want to develop and sell profitable UK made products. If your application is accepted, you'll receive a copy of my exclusive free private training on how to develop profitable UK made products with ease. In the training, I go through my exact three-part framework that we use to help our clients successfully launch and grow their UK-made brands. And I'll show you exactly how it works along with all kinds of examples. I'll also explain everything you need to know about the accelerator to ensure that we can truly help you to get the results that you're looking for. To apply for an invite to the British Brand Accelerator and get a copy of the training, go to katehills.co.uk forward slash apply. You mentioned there international buyers, so international retailers. How did those accounts come about? Did you have for that a sales agent that you work with or did they approach you? Have you done any trade shows or anything to publicize the brand? Yeah. So again, another good question. We would love to afford to be able to have a a sales agent on the team, but we can't at the moment. So all of our retail um, accounts have actually come in organically and often off the back of our press. Um, So we have never reached out to a retailer ourselves to secure a listing. Everything has come directly to us. But we definitely on a next step for us as a business is to become a lot more proactive with that because excitingly what we've noticed is that retail's really opening up again that's at least what 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 we see you know sort of the high streets are becoming a lot more buzzy so whilst initially our strategy was very much focused like on our on our e-commerce we now want to open up that 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 world of 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 wholesaling and, and and do that globally so I think a next key hire for us certainly will be someone who can proactively uh, get us get us those those accounts and get get us those accounts globally. You know, we do very very well in in the USA, but we could certainly be doing more there. Um, we're just about to go into retail in in Australia, which is awesome. The UK actually has a trade deal with Australia, which is newly inked. And as a British-made brand, we we can essentially trade with Australia duty-free, which is great. Makes it even more appealing for sort of both parties. Uh, we are retailed out in South Korea as well. And again, that's a very interesting market for us as a luxury brand. They've, they've got such an evolved fashion landscape, as you'll know. It's, they're such trend leaders, tastemakers, and we want to be doing more in retail there. And long-term, we're very keen to to get into China, although that's going to be a whole a whole different kettle of fish. It's interesting that you said Australia there, because obviously the advantage of being a seasonal brand, 
selling to a country that's in the southern hemisphere yeah. is their summer is our winter so how do you make those challenges work by having like you say a, a brand that is very seasonal everyone talks about tennis in the summer no one wants to talk about it and i assume the sales as well are are there's peaks and troughs as well how do you manage that as a business yeah so our the global market as we our, our global markets as, as we have them at the moment help us a little because we are trading with the us and that helps us extend a bit through those summer months so we'll be selling to texas we'll be selling to you know sort of da down in miami we do some good business so that kind of allows us to extend a little and obviously la so that allows us to extend a little bit further into the winter months but when we get australia up and running that's re that will mean that we we literally have 365 day sales or but all the, the the potential to have those we 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 will have an always on market so yeah so that's ex exactly why australia is is and, and southern hemisphere is is so is so key for us i think that's really good news about the trade deal as well at least yeah yeah that, are you selling anything to europe at all Yes, yeah, we are open to selling in Europe and, and our website, if a European customer comes on, they can, from the EU, they can buy from us, but we don't actively promote ourselves within Europe uh, for, from an e-commerce perspective. The reason being that although we do have a, a, although there is a trade deal with the EU, which means that goods can be zero rated, it's still complicated from a VAT perspective. Uh, you, you can still be picking up VAT bills and we're not yet set up as a as like an EU entity to be able to charge back our VAT. That'll be something we get to, but it's kind of not a huge priority for us right now. But the problem with Europe can be kind of get, getting the returns through as well. That's That's become a lot easier. So when I say getting the returns through, I mean getting them through without you then being charged import duty on the way back. That is made a bit easier by our DHL account as we've the, the paperwork with with the EU, with customs, has become a lot smoother, um, but it's still a bit tricky. However, we do have uh, retail accounts out in Europe. So, for instance, we're sold uh, in Germany's version of Harrods, which is called a Brüninger, which is fantastic. You know, they're huge. Obviously, Germany, I believe, is the biggest market in uh, Europe for luxury so, so yeah, that's that's kind of where where we're at with that. We kind of prefer to do just the bigger retail deals because it gets a bit bitty doing the e-commerce with Europe for the the reasons I've mentioned. It's also really expensive to send our goods there individually. It's more expensive yeah. for us to ship individual dresses to Europe than it is to the US. And by the way, in the US, although we don't have a trade deal with them, so obviously I keep mentioning trade deals, but trade deals mean that we don't pay import duties, as you know. But so we don't have a trade deal with the US at the moment. I know they're being worked on, but Europe, uh, the US has a really high de minimis value, which is the point at which duty is charged on items. And that's $800, which is awesome because our dresses, I think they must be about $450 um, in conversion. So people, we can trade with the US on a direct to consumer basis, duty free. Fantastic. And it's cheaper shipping than Europe. So you yeah. do the maths, you know, <laughs> and, and it's so, it, you know, it's a bigger market for tennis. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with, with Europe at the moment. 
You obviously are good at doing the maths because making in the UK, a lot of brands don't feel like they can get the margins they need in order to be able to wholesale. So how have you made that work? Yeah, well, I think the obvious thing to say is that we are a premium brand. So we do we do have that higher price point. You know, our, our dresses retail for, I, I think, between 300 and 350 pounds. So that gives us, that can give us like a pretty healthy margin to work with. So that, that helps us, although the more we go into, um, as you've said, sort of wholesaling, the tighter our margins and the more scrutinized they are. So the way that we, the way that we sort of work around that is obviously we found this brilliant, our brilliant factory who, you know, we can uh we can work in terms of pricing if if we're doing you know sort of la- larger orders we might be able to you know sort of bring bring that down slightly um uh but it's it is you know it is it is a challenge it is certainly more expensive when you look at the cmt pricing the manufacturing out in europe but there are other saving so Although you might be paying more for the CMT, you are saving on things like airfares out to go and see your factory in Portugal, for instance, and hotels. So we we figured it out that if we were still manufacturing in Portugal, we might be spending around £4,000 every trip minimum. Just on our flights, hotel, we'd have to get a hotel in London, hire a car, etc. And we'd want to be visiting our factories at least once a quarter. So... There you go. That's what is that? Sixteen k. I think that's right. Yeah, sixteen k just on flights. But immediately we save by just jumping on a train up yeah. up to London. So there's a saving. There's also savings on obviously importing the goods from Portugal to the UK. I know we can get into things like bonded warehouses, etc. But let's be honest, as a small brand, that's a few okay. years off. It's not a reality. Like, come on. But so, so you really are going to be paying to import your goods and bring them to the UK. And there's, you know, there's a cost there that can easily be a few thousand pounds, you know, over, over the course of the year. Uh, and then there is, we found that there was a quality issue, which ended up costing us money when, when we were manufacturing out in Portugal. And again, that, that was that it was a tricky one because our pieces are very complex they have to fit really well there's a lot going on okay you know but the quality issue meant that so I'll give you an example we had 150 dresses come through with I think it was I don't know 10 pin tucks on one arm and six pin tucks on another all of them were like all 150 were like that more than half we've realized were like that and what can you know we had to spend money then we've corrected those here we actually had to take some of the sleeves off and anyway it's a long story but there was a cost there and that wouldn't have happened I believe well it doesn't happen here in the UK because we can literally we 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 pick up on stuff and by the way those dresses were QC'd out in Portugal by a by a third party but it's it's little things like that that are you know so so yeah, I think when you take everything into consideration, you can't just look at the CMT price for manufacturing in the UK. You've got to look at all those extras. And when you yeah. do that calculation, honestly, for us, I th- I think we're spending a little bit less overall manufacturing in the UK than were we making out in, in Europe. 
This is what I say to people all the time. And this is what I got frust so frustrated about when I worked for big retailers because they don't, they have different cost centers for their overseas buying trips and, and all of this sort of thing. So all they're looking at is just the intake margin. So, yeah. and you don't, you've got to factor in all that other stuff, like things that fit really well because you've been able to go to the factory several times to fit it, sell much better and get you many more repeat customers because they want to come back because you're, and I know for you, particularly your fit is really important. So how do you get the yeah. fit um, so good now? Do you work with a pattern cutter? Do you have someone in house? Yes. So we work with the most amazing, amazing garment tech slash pattern cutter called Paris, who I'm going to give a big shout out to. Uh, she works with us freelance and again, has just been a game changer. And it, and it has been amazing to find someone who can do both, who can do the garment tech piece, but also can do the patterns as well. Because it just, she has this like intrinsic knowledge of the of the fit that we need to achieve and can, you know, just relate those two things together, which is, which is awesome. So yeah, so our fit has become a lot better since we, since we are, are, are working with, with Paris, which is amazing. And before that we were working with uh, a garment tech uh, and pattern cutter uh, through our agent but I think they were yeah they were sort of employed through the agent and they were lovely but it's very different having someone who's sort of on on your team who you can go and pop up and see at the drop of a hat it's just different you know so so yeah so it's all all down to all down to Paris and having having that resource just a lot a lot closer to our business which again is is amazing we feel so lucky but it's taken us a few years to to get there but yeah, yeah, it's crucial, crucial to have that excellent garment tech, that excellent pattern cutter is obviously key, key to everything. With your dresses, Laura, if anything, I think you should be selling them for more. I think you're actually underselling yourself, really. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. We've, we've worked really hard on our pricing strategy, but I'll, I'll tell you something interesting, which is that whenever we raise the price of our dresses on the website, we actually sell more of them. So there have been times that at the beginning, we were trying to price competitively, pricing around 250, which we could do on a Portugal CMT basis. We sold some. But when we essentially, you know, sort of added, you know, 50% to that, we sold a lot more. And when we added, you know, or doubled it, we were selling a lot, a lot more. And it's interesting because our customer does equate the higher price point with with a higher quality. Now we've sort of settled on a bit of a sweet spot on our pricing because although we can sell it at quite a high price point on our website where the customer comes in and they're surrounded by our brand world, in third-party retailer, it's actually harder to sell at those prices when someone's walking into a shop, they have no idea what the brand is and they've got Nike selling on one hand for $100 and then there's us for $500. They're like, what? I can see they're more beautiful pieces, but there's such a, you know, such a huge price difference. So we've just, we've had to balance that, that out a bit. But yeah, pricing's really interesting, particularly at the more premium end of the market. Uh, but obviously we'd never want to like overcharge over for our, for our pieces. You know, we do, we do charge, we do charge fairly and, and yeah, we, we could sell them for, for more, but it's striking that balance. 
Yeah, brilliant. Really interesting. So you've won quite a few awards, haven't you, Laura? Can you just tell us what they are and how they came about? Did you submit your own entries or did someone else help you with them? We have won a few awards, which has been lovely. And it always, it just gives you a little boost, uh, which is fab. So we, we've won Global Startup of the Year twice. I won Startup Entrepreneur of the Year last year. And we've won, I'm just looking at them because they're our trophy cabinets over there. Uh, and we won, what's the other one at the end? Oh, yes. So we won one through the British government called the Made in Britain Sold to the World Awards. Although we didn't win that, we, but we were highly commended. So we've got, our, we've got a certificate. So that, that counts. Um, I didn't even know <laughs> the government did have a Made in Britain Sold to the World Award. How, how can people find out about how to enter that? It launched... Well, I only heard about it. I'm going to say it launched this year. Maybe it, maybe it's been going for a while. I, I've got a feeling it hasn't, but yeah. So it, it started this year, and and it's part of the Department for Business and Trade, part of their sort of exporting push. Oh, and I think it's worth mentioning because obviously I, I keep going on about trade deals and the Export Academy, etc. I am a, a what's called a, a British Export Champion, and that's a, a role. Uh, that uh, that was sort of given to me by the British government, and it means that I well champion exporting in in the UK as an export brand. So just just a little segue. That's that's why I keep keep going on about it. Amazing. Although I am genuinely genuinely passionate about it. But yeah, so the Made in Britain Sold to the World Awards. If you want to find out more about those, should go to the website, which I think is great.gov.uk. And that is like the hub for all things government and exporting. And by the way, don't don't be don't anyone be put off by you know sort of government. It's it's not uh, it's not political. It's uh, it, it's just you know it's sort of the the brilliant sort of civil civil service and end end of things. And and on that website, uh, you'll find details on the Export Academy, which I mentioned. I'm sure that there'll be details on there at some point for the Made in Britain Soul to the world awards at some point maybe next year but that is an awesome resource for anyone that's interested in exporting like i definitely go to that website there's some good stuff on there and it's all free which is great we like that but yeah we we uh did our own award submissions again it would be it'd be lovely to pay someone to do to do those for us i know that you know that's what some people do which is great we don't have that budget We'd rather spend that budget on Facebook ads or our PR. So yeah, so we we did we did those entries ourselves, and it's worth doing. It's worth spending the time. Doesn't matter if you don't win, but it's just often really useful to like put down the trajectory of the brand and the company and and where you see your future on on a piece of paper, like outside of a a business plan. I found it to be a really useful exercise. It you know, it sort of solidified some of our, our plans moving forward. Uh, so yeah, well, well worth doing, worth, worth spending the time there. Brilliant. Laura, you've been a fantastic guest. Some amazing tips there from people and so inspirational. I mean, what you've achieved in like, what, less than th three years or just over three years in your business has been amazing. All these awards, the export accounts that you've picked up. Yeah, really incredible. So well done. Where can people find you if they want to check out your brand thanks so much kate well uh, our website is xaatweekend.com and we're also on instagram at xaatweekend uh, so yes yeah, so do 
do look us up, particularly if anyone's keen on playing tennis or pickleball or paddle. Laura, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Kate. So lovely to speak to you. And thanks so much for everything you were doing through Make It British. We are huge fans of yours. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Laura. Bye. Bye.